Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So, Guy, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called The Set the Control Store. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, Sourceful of Secrets. You did, and in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Settler Control Tour. Hello, Gary. Hello, Guy. It's been a while. It's been a while, but so we've, we've compiled, or we haven't. We haven't been sitting here with... with we've our, done nothing. We've done nothing, Gary. We've had our feet up on a sun lounger somewhere, haven't we? Um, <laughs> I wish. Not, not together, by the way, I have to say. We don't share a sun lounger, do we? we well, no, we do. Ho- I like that. I think our listeners should imagine us as this sort of Morecambe and Wise couple. Holidaying in Eastbourne. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Staying in Mrs Muggins B&B, sharing a bed. With a record player and a few vinyl exactly, records we've taken with down with set. Exactly. And then just <laughs> scouring the local flea markets. Yeah. For a kind of rare stack ridge. <laughs> <laughs> so our lovely producer, Ian, has, has compiled a few episodes, which uh, we're going to be playing, you'll be able to get in the, over the next few weeks. Yeah, to fill in. And we're starting off with Guitar Heroes. Yeah, yeah, we are. And we're going to have a few clips from the various Guitar Heroes that we've had on. Who are we going to be listening to today? We've got Mike Campbell from Tom Petty and Fleetwood Mac, Joan Armour Trading, Johnny Ma, Nile Rogers, and Phil Manzanera. Phil Manzanera, yeah, yeah, good friend of yours, yeah, yeah. Who I had, a, I had the most amazing. Sorry, the one little little tidbit I do want to put in was the other week I had the incredible honour of playing in a supergroup at John Wetton's memorial, and all three of them were alumni of Rock on Tours. It was Phil Manzanera, Chris Difford, and. The man who hasn't played drums for 20 years, Bill Bruford. And you played with Bill, didn't you? Uh, yeah, we played Let's Stick Together. Wow. I mean, people have been freaking out about that on the internet, saying, you know, about time, this is something we've always wanted. You, you know, Guy Pratt and Bill Bruford rhythm section. I don't remember anybody ever wanting that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Said no one ever. No one person did say it. Like, someone said, well, in all of my fantasy band lineups, I never had kind of Guy Pratt and Bill Bruford on my bingo card. <laughs> I, I don't, how was he to play with? Uh, he was amazing. I mean, we were playing Let's Stick Together. I mean, what, which was pretty, you know. Not really Bill was, Bruford, was, is it, really? I mean, but he was so happy. I know. It was so... 
Well, apparently he's, you know, he's always said, I've actually got lots of 4-4 in me. <laughs> and in fact, at the end of the song, Chris did say, so thank you very much. That's the only song in 4-4 you're going to hear tonight. Oh, that's brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> no, he was brilliant because he was so happy. He was just so happy behind the kit. You can see it if, if you, you know, there's clips on YouTube, obviously. We've got our first rock guitar hero coming up it's, and it's got to be Scott Gorham, the uh, Californian golden guitar god. And uh, we are going to be picking up at the point where Scott has turned down the chance to work with Supertramp and instead he's auditioning for some unknown band called Thin Lizzy. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. That's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. That caused a big problem in the band, actually. I was having too much fun. Thank you guys for still being around, still making music, still being into it, and doing this podcast. It, it's uh, it's fabulous. Well, I get the feeling that us three should go for a pint. That's what I think. I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Keep on rocking! It was great. I'm Phil, you know, I'm the singer. I went, no shit, man. Oh, amazing. And he had this big, huge grin on his face. Uh, and he said, come on in. Let me introduce you to, to the other guys. Right? And, uh, you know, we walk in and I, and I see both the two Brian's arms are crossed and they're looking at me going, oh, okay, Brian's already, Brian Robinson's already got the gig, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been there. Too. He's a veteran. He's been there for two weeks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so and i go on to meet these guys and, and i can't understand why they're they're so standoffish right you know what's the deal here you know apparently what had happened is i was i was guitar player number 25 to come in and audition for the band and all they thought was well here's another one we're gonna hate we're just gonna kick them out of the street you know <laughs> actually i i got through the uh the audition what was the audition you know, I should know that. Uh, Breakfast I, in so, America. <laughs> yeah, dreamer. <laughs> right? Oh, my God. <laughs> I actually know that one. Um, I, some of it was just the three-chord blues kind of thing. Right. And I remember at one point, uh, Phil turns around to uh, Robbo and says, hey, teach, teach Scott such and such, right? So he blitzes through it really quickly, and I'm desperately trying to, you know, catch the chord patterns. And he says, you got it? I went, well, he goes, let me go through it again. He goes, bang, 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 bang. And then we take a break, and then the middle eight, it's better. You got it now? Uh, yeah, okay. And my eyes did not come off of his fretboard for the next four minutes, right? <laughs> he would make a chord change. Bam, I was right behind him. Bam, right behind him again, right? So... I think maybe that might have impressed them that I would I could fake it so well. <laughs> but this is a pub rock though, because what what they what they're doing is something a little bit different, isn't it? This, I mean, obviously we all know what what Thin Lizzy went on to inspire. You know, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, Def Leppard, everybody. You know, we all wanted to be be Thin Lizzy at one point. But but where were they getting their ideas from? Where was Phil getting his ideas from? Well, he loved Van Morrison. 
Yeah, there's no doubt about that. He loved his the the lyrics, the phrasing, the way he sang, everything. Uh, he was also a massive Jimi Hendrix fan. Uh, Jeff Beck, which, well, that's really terrible, isn't it? The word uh, yeah, Jeff that's Beck. yeah. He was a huge he was a huge guitar fan. Phil was right, uh, and the reason he but the reason he got two guitar players in the band was when Eric Bell quit halfway through like this, this Christmas show. So Phil being the guy he is, said, no, nope, we're going to carry on. We're, and it was just, I think it was the first drums and bass thing that ever happened, right? Because they just kept on going. And he said to himself, that's never going to happen again. If one of the guitar players falls out, I still have another one and we can keep carrying on. That's why there were two guitar players that in case one quits that. on stage. <laughs> At the time, Talk that about was Belt a main... Yeah, yeah. Why did what you're saying? Because he loved guitar, and he clearly did things like Warrior is. is and what's funny yeah. is, is when you hit when you, once you realise that Warrior is written about Jimi Hendrix, hmm. it's it's the track is so Hendrix. It's a different meaning, right? Yeah, no, but but it, all the riffs are so are so Hendrix. Right. You know, I'd never really really clocked that before. But um, but why did he play bass? Do you think? Especially as he's uh, going to sing, and as we and I you know I know I've I've learned those songs. Singing and playing those parts is not easy. No, no. And that's why uh, he, he loved to pedal that E, right? Yeah, Just yeah. That E, right? And, and when I would come to him and say, Phil, I got this really great riff that we can play in this song, and he, he'd look at me and go, uh, right? Uh, he says, you do know I have to sing over all of this, right? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, okay. And then we'd have to simplify it down because uh, he figured his main job really was to communicate with the audience, yeah. right? Not not to show off how what a fabulous bass player he was. And actually, he was a he was a pretty damn good. He bass. was a great bass. I mean, player. and you can say this. He was a brilliant say bass player. The same thing, right, about but he wouldn't tell anybody that. Sting. Yeah. He, he would he would always put himself down as, as a bass but, but, player. But right? you know, Sting and Paul McCartney, both who sing and play bass. You know, they're both incredible bass players, but they put right. their performance first, don't they? And it's. Uh, Yes. So it's not right. like a guitar player who sings who goes from singing to guitar to singing to guitar, you know. Well, I think a, lo a lot of people don't realise, and I'm, I'm telling you as a bass player who has to sing sometimes, is that there's a really weird thing. Singing guitar, singing and playing guitar is completely intuitive. It makes, and mm. even if you're, it's the same part, there's something about bass playing that's completely different. You have to learn all of it. Yeah, it, because it, you're always on the move. Yeah. That's bass true. players are always on the we move. We play a chord. They're they're the guys that are keeping it down for you, right? Yeah. Keeping you in line, right? Where the guitar player can hit a chord and have a cigarette at the same time, you know, kind of thing, you know, you get a break, you know, the bass player and drummer, they can't take a break, you know, they're they're always working. You know? When when so, did you Thank you, Scott, thank you. When, when did <laughs> Well I know to the guy I'm a true believer, like I say, in the whole rhythm section. I am yeah. I'm right there with you, man. When did you and Robbo discover that twin guitar? harmony thing which became such a trademark for you and has gone on to you know every band has copied it it, it was kind of uh straight off the bat only because the uh songs in the beginning kind of demanded it but it was very sparse the uh, harmony guitar but i think the time that it really hit home was uh i think it was on the the fighting album and robo went out into the studio just to record a single line and i think he was going to double track himself right Press the record button. He starts to play it, but the uh, engineer had had it. Uh, well, 
He had a delay on it, right? There was a, a certain amount of delay that when it fed back, it fed back in harmony, right? And of course, the engineer was horrified. He said, "Oh my God, I'm so sorry about that. I, I forgot all about that." And and I'm going, "No, no, wait a minute. That that was really cool. You know, that was not supposed to be a harmony line at all." And that kind of made me realize that we could actually start introducing all these harmony lines in a lot more places than than I had realized that we could. Right. So that's exactly what we started to do. I even said on the next line, I said, "You know, I've got a line here." Uh, and I brought Rob over and said, this is the line. You want to work out the harmony to that? And he did. And we, that was us kind of up, up, up and away, you know, on the You know what, I heard, sorry, Gary, because yeah. I, I heard another, I heard you on another podcast, Scott, and you were saying how, but then when Gary Moore came in, that kind of went up a gear again. And then, you oh. know. Some of the exponentially, exponentially, <laughs> right? Because I think there's... And he go, how about we do this? Because <laughs> that's it. You just... harmony, I'm like... Sure, yeah, that sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Did you ever feel threatened by the other guitarist, you know? Was there ever a moment of like, shit, you know, I've got to up my game here, or... he? Oh, that was constant. i got to up my game. Oh, that, that was a constant thing, but... but <clears throat> or, or conversely, was it like, oh, it's this guy, if I can relax. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank God we got him in the yeah. band. No, uh... uh to me, uh, being at Thinalistic was, and I hate to use this word, but it was a constant learning journey for me. Uh, after having so little uh, playing ex experience coming in from Glendale, I was constantly learning from everybody that got up on stage with us, right? So for me, it was like a master class, you know, being up on the stage with, uh, with, with some of these guys, right? And you, you learn how to steal but steal in the correct way that nobody knows you're doing it you know <laughs> <laughs> right and applying it to your own style kind of, kind of thing you know you're you know you're learning the whole time I, I, uh, go on. I always say to everybody never never feel threatened when, when you come up uh, against somebody who, who you know is better than you or you feel that is better than you what you gotta do you have to learn from these people you know because if you don't you're a fool. But wouldn't you say that there's, uh, I mean, not unique amongst instruments, but because of where it is, that, that lead guitarists are by their nature competitive? Well, you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there is ego there, absolutely. Oh, hey, check this out. Can you do that? You know? and there, can't, there aren't many bands with two lead guitarists. I mean, I suppose there's Blue Oyster Cult have three, I suppose, but, you know. There, there aren't many. I got a I got a text from Midjour today talking about you, and you, his okay. quote is the rock that held it all together, the one guitarist who stood the test of time. Ah, that's because he played with Midge. Yeah. Midge played with Pin Lizzie. Midge is great. <clears throat> He's really great. When uh, when Gary uh, absconded uh, during uh, halfway through an American tour, uh, Phil says, "Let's get Midge in, right?" I went, what? He's a, he's a keyboard player for God's sake. He goes, no, no, no. He, he plays guitar too. And he plays really well. You know, went, does he know the songs? Yeah, yeah. He's the, and he didn't. Right. Uh, so what we did is we uh, we got him and, and said, okay, here's your plane ticket. And, and Mitch is thinking the whole time, well, you know, it's, it's an eight hour flight. I've got my cassette player. I'll get the headphones on, make a bunch of notes. And, you know, learn a lot of the things that, uh, that he didn't quite know before, right? But he didn't realize that we'd put him on Concord. And he was... <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
He was in New York in three hours, right? <laughs> <laughs> Oops. But as soon as he kind of tied, I think the first show we did was uh, New Orleans. And I went straight up to his hotel room with my guitar and we just furiously started. <laughs> yeah. Beat him to death, right? But, you know, we started where, okay, you do that part. That's about your harmony lines that. Blah, blah, blah. We just kind of mapped things out, you know, really quickly. And I said, honestly, if there's a bit that you, uh, don't know, or you've forgotten, just hang out and just, just play the chords and then we'll work on it tomorrow. Right. And, and that's, that's how we worked it. And he did great. We're going to keep it American. Now we're moving down to Florida and he had his own band, has his own band, the Dirty Knobs. I can never say that. I can never say that name. It's just, it's, does that translate <laughs> that, that's in why America? I said it. Does it translate in America? I know, I know. The dirty, yeah, no, I don't. The dirty knobs. I don't, is it, does it mean an amp? A Greek sort of an amp that hasn't been well tended. You just think of a clinic somewhere in in Prade Street, don't you, <laughs> Paddington? <laughs> um, yeah, go on, carry on. What is it that's so inherently sleazy about Paddington? Paddington, yes. They're just, they're just isn't it? Anything that happens in Paddington is. It is. It's a sort of where Graham Greene's dirty, dirty Mac, isn't it? Wonder. When they're feeling like they need to meet Mitzi. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's, he was uh, obviously Tom Petty's right hand man and co wrote The Brilliant Boys of Summer with Don Henley, which I never fully knew until, you know, researching Mike and having Mike come on the show. And I remember it being, a, it was a great show and a, some great stories in there. So um, let's get him on, Mike Campbell. Now we're, we're in that talking about Boys of Summer and Don Henley and how did it develop? Did you have. All of the chord structure. Yeah, it's definitely out. worth lighting a pipe for. Definitely worth yeah. lighting a pipe for. Loving I, the pipe. Oh, it's, it's tobacco. <laughs> it's, it's tobacco. It's not okay. <laughs> but uh, it's my last vice. I've given up all the other stuff. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you quickly. Uh, it's you know, it's a songwriting experience that I had. Uh, I had the Lynn drum and I was basically playing around with it, and I got all those little tick 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 tick, you know, little bits and yeah yeah yeah, and I was making a beat. And then I happened to have a synthesizer there in my room that day. I had the beat. I was just going da, 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 along with that and came up with the chords on the keyboard. And then on my TAC four track, you know, I put the drums on one track and the keyboard on another and put a few guitars on it and threw the chords together. Like I always do when I write, you know, I just kind of put something together that I thought, you know, had a, a feel and an arc to it. And I was just really lucky with that one. You know, Don heard it and immediately, you know, got a song in his head. Did you write it for Tom initially? Did you think it was for Well, him? everything I write is basically for me. But of course, with Tom, um, I would always show him everything I did. And I showed him that song, him and Jimmy Ivey, during uh, whatever record we were working on, Southern Accents. And uh, I had a demo and I, sh I played it for him. And they kind of liked it. But in Tom's defense, at the time I played it for him, I had a different chorus chord. I went to a minor chord in the chorus. Mm. And as the summer uh, was finished, it goes to a major chord in the chorus, yeah. which lifts it up. That yeah, that, that would have been Boys of Winter. <laughs> <laughs> as he didn't really hear it the way Don heard it. Yeah. Or he may have kept it. But it really wasn't in the flow of the thing we were doing at the time. And so Iavine told me that Don was looking for some music. I figured, well, that's been overlooked. I'll send this to him. And, uh, you know, I'm just, um, I'm always seem to be in the right place at the right time, you know? I don't know how. But I was watching you talk about it on your Instagram site. And you were in the room, weren't you, when you played it to Don? Yeah, 
house. I'd never met him before. And oh wow! You know, oh, so it's not like you knew him. Or no, no, no. Jimmy Iovine uh, oh. phone call, and I went to his house in L.A. up in the mountains, and he had this big breakfast table. He sat at one end like this, with his arms crossed and his head down, and he had a little cassette player, and I gave him my cassette. And he didn't move. He didn't tap his foot. He didn't nod his head or anything. I thought he hated it. I'm sitting at the other end of the table just thinking, well, as soon as this is over, I'll get out of here. You know? Wow. It sounds like a meeting between Macron and Putin, doesn't it, really? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know which is which. Macron. Go for Macron. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, Don. <laughs> he, he kind of went, yeah, that's, you know, I'll work on that. And I thought, yeah, right. Okay. So I'm, I drove home. And then he called me and he said, I've written the best song I've written in 10 years to that track and I want to make a record out of it. And I guess he took the cassette out in his car and he saw a deadhead sticker on a Cadillac and he wrote the words listening to the cassette. And um, yeah, there's more to the story, but that's that's the rough idea how it happened. You, you know what? I think, you know, we all love what Don added to that and literally oh, yeah. what he added to it. But the music that you gave him, I think, you know, as a songwriter myself, it led him into the wistful nostalgia that the lyrics were about. I, th I feel that was already, that's in the music. He just drew out what you were already making. You're right. You're right. There's a, and it's, you know, I'm not going to take full credit for it. It's just a muse, you know. It was a, it was a day where I just had those chords, struck a chord in me, and uh, I put the guitar on, and it all seemed to take on this, this shape of a mood, you know, like a wistful mood. But then with the redemption in the chorus where it goes major key, which really made a difference. And uh, I do think the music is really good on that one. It, it kind of stands on its own as an instrumental in a way. And I guess when Don heard it, he, he could feel that and it inspired him, you know, to come up with what he came up with. So it's a give and take. Thing. Just a little bit interested. And I think after talking to you, even for this short amount of time, I can see what a generous guy you are. But I'm just interested to know how it felt to have, you know, you had a writing relationship with Tom and you were the definitely the, you know, the guitar player, right-hand man. And then Jeff comes in, he's another guitar player and he's writing a lot with Tom. Did that feel like another <laughs> woman? If you know what I'm saying, Mike? Uh, I know what you're saying. Uh, I don't ever remember feeling any kind of jealousy. I was just happy to be in the room, you know, and uh, the stuff was, was coming in so good. I mean, I did end up getting some co-writes um, with them. But no, you know, it's like a breath of fresh air for both of us, you know, to bring in some new energy. And, you know, it's interesting with Jeff, we would start a track in the afternoon and by 6 p.m. the record was done. All background vocal, solo, harmony, wow. vocal, he just gets it done. But I found out early in the process that you better have some ideas in your pocket. Because we cut a track one day and uh, we needed to put a guitar on it. So next day we came in and he said, so, well, Mike, have you got any ideas? And I'm used to just, well, run the tape and mm -hmm. I'll, I'll fall into something. I said, no, I'm not, not off the top. He said, well, I do. <laughs> and he'd been up all night working hard part, right? And it was great. So <laughs> I learned real fast that if I want to get on the record, I better just say, yeah, I got something right here. You know? From then on, I had something ready to go. You know, I did my homework. <laughs>
And that heat is horrible, isn't it? I can imagine what that feels like when all the eyes are on you. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit like poor George Harrison in the in the Get Back film when you can see that Paul isn't happy with what he's playing, and he's but he's just really under pressure because the cameras are on him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. George is a wonderful guy, you know. It, on the song "Handle with Care," oh, yeah. George liked me for some. He he just really liked me, and he was real kind to me. They called me down to the session. They hadn't put the slide guitar on "Handle with Care" yet. And they wanted me to play on it, you know, because uh, they were just generous that way. So I went down there and, you know, there's Jeff Lynn and George Harrison, who I didn't know that well yet. And I'm pretty intimidated. And I got my amp guitar and they ran the track and I was playing, but I was kind of like a little bit frozen up because that's the Beatles sitting there, you know? Yeah. And so finally, Jeff said, no, that's pretty good what you did. And I said, no, it's not right. I said, what I hear on here is George playing the slide because it, it's his. It's George Harrison. <laughs> if he plays it, it'd be better than what I'm doing. So he took my guitar with my sound and played that beautiful slide solo. But that's an instance where I was just, you know, intimidated by the presence in the room. It does happen sometimes. I don't know how much you want to say about that time when, you know, you, you got the call about Tom and how it, how the band and the Heartbreakers dealt with all of that. Well, it's how do you deal with the death in the family? I'm still grieving, and I'll probably always grieve, but um, I'm getting past the uh, the hollow, empty grieving into more of a grateful type of grieving where I hear the songs and I think of him, and I have dreams about him sometimes that are beautiful. I have great memories, and I hold on to those. And uh, I always kind of feel like he's sitting next to me in a way because we were so close. And uh, if I'm doing anything and I'm not, well, I don't know what I should do. It's almost like I go, hey, what would you do? And he kind of leads me, you know, it sounds kind of corny, but no. it, we were really close, you know, and, uh, you know, it was a, it was a mishap that he's, he should still be here, but it was just an accidental thing that happened. And uh, it kind of shook our world quite strongly, you know, and uh, I don't think you ever get over something like that, you know, but uh, you have to carry on. Yeah. And keep making music, you know? Yeah. I mean, especially, you know, someone who's so full of uh, creative juice and life for them to be taken away so soon is, you know, that's so shocking. Aside from being in a band, we were brothers, you know, we were really close yeah. friends. And uh, I think what I missed the most, I missed the music, but I also just missed the phone calls. You know, we just talk on the phone and he was so funny and a great conversationalist and very smart. And I really miss those conversations. Yeah. So if you want to hear all of uh, Mike Campbell's episode, obviously you can search it somewhere in our um, archives, which are all up there. How many years have we been doing this guy? I don't even know. 742. Yes. There were three plagues during it, weren't there? (laughs) That's right. I remember. Do you remember we had to do that special on the repeal of the Corn Laws? (laughs) I I just remember when I had to, we're doing it, you were covered in boils. <laughs> yeah. That was only a few weeks ago. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, anyway. So, well, when you finish listening to this uh, Guitar Hero special, you can you can dig back and hear any of these. Obviously, exactly. Over there's something like 160 of them. But anyway, now we're moving up to a, a homegrown guitar god. S. Um, we chatted quite recently to Joan Arma Trading, who is not only a superb songwriter, an instantly recognisable singer, but, and I can attest to this from having seen her from the side of the stage for a whole tour in Australia, she can shred. It's such a pleasure to have you on. 
you know, I mean, you've been in our lives for so long. This is your 50th anniversary, isn't it? Yeah, you guys aren't doing too bad either, though. <laughs> but we were, both, we were just saying, Joan, how we, we, both, we can both remember exactly the first time and where we were when we heard Love and Affection. Oh, right. such an incredibly powerful record. I was, and it's, you know, I remember I bought that album because of it. At the age of 14, 15, when I just, you know, I wasn't buying that sort of thing. It was, right. it was fantastic. <laughs> That's right. No, That's it's, right. It, no it's, it's, it's lovely to hear. I've, I now and again get um, people from heavy metal bands saying, this is the record I bought. And I, I just heard, um, I can't remember the name of the band, but it's a very heavy metal, you know, that raw um, thing. And they did a cover of one of my songs, Bad Habits, in that, rah, 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 you know, that, oh, really? <laughs> that voice. <laughs> well, they sound, sound like monsters. <laughs> oh, with a lover, I could really die. Yeah, you know what? It's funny yeah. with that, that track, because I bought that, that as well. And I was buying punk at the time. And I wouldn't yeah. have bought Carol King's Tapestry then. That was too much. For you should have. Yeah, I know I should have done. I did later. We're I did later. a lot of time. But there was, you know, the singer-songwriter wasn't really in in my world, you know. But your that record, for some reason, seemed to cross over. It it had, and I think it's something to do with your voice, something to do with the the rawness of emotion that you managed to project in your vocals. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right, but when I listen to anybody that I listen to, any record that I listen to, unless it's a particular music that's just about beats, um, it is the voice that you listen to. So if you take your band, you take Spandau Ballet, you take Duran Duran, you take, I don't know, David Bowie, The Stones, whoever you listen to, the first port of call generally is the vocals, because that's the thing that's going to hit you. And if you can connect with the vocal in whatever way, whether you want discord or you want somebody who can't really sing but can express themselves, but there's still the voice that you're listening to. If you listen to Bob Dylan, you wouldn't call Bob Dylan the world's best singer, but yeah. when he puts across a song, you believe what he's saying. You know, So I, I, I'm very flattered when people say that to me, but I realise that it's not because it's me, it's because it's the voice. And, and I think that's really important. I think it's the voice, but it's also your persona was something um, because it, it you were very sort of stripped down and, and like you were saying, raw in the voice, but very uh, there was something so honest and straightforward about you, which I think, especially as it was at the time of punk and everything, that yeah. made you kind of, you know, that's, we were all looking for kind of truth and reality. Who was turning you on? Who, who made you become, want My to mom. become a writer? Your My mom. mom. Well, oh. well, no, not to become a writer. I was born to do this. So nobody said, Joan, write songs. It's because nobody showed me, like a lot of people, again, like a lot of other people, nobody showed me, nobody said, Joan, why don't you try writing a song? This is how you write it. This is how you arrange it. Nobody said that. But what happened was when my dad wouldn't let me play his guitar um, and didn't even want me to touch it, it made me want to play the guitar. But before that, my mom had bought a piano just as a piece of furniture put it in the front room, and it, literally as soon as the piano came, I started writing songs. And the piano, as you know, it's really easy to play, 
not in, in an expert way, but it's really easy to play. You could sit on the piano and it makes a great noise. You see Jerry Lee Lewis, he'll sit on the piano and it sounds great. Mm-hmm. Elton, different people, they'll sit on yeah, the piano. Paul McCartney great. always talks about just if you want to begin as a songwriter on the piano, just play the white keys, start with yeah. C and just Absolutely. only play the white keys. Yeah. Just put your hand anywhere, you're going to make something sound really nice. Or do what Brian Ferry does and just play the black keys. Works, <laughs> yeah. works just as well. Irving <laughs> <Irvin, laughs> Berlin apparently could only play the black keys. and he has, yeah, he Everything he ever wrote was in B flat. That yeah. he could adjust the key with. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, so playing the piano and making up my my songs, and I, I, I've heard Paul McCartney say this as well, um, I'm quite good at melodies. <laughs> I don't have to struggle <laughs> to get a melody. Um, so when you have the piano and you're just playing really simply, coming up with a melody was not a problem for me. And because I used to read a lot of, of the, the classics, you know, Dylan Dickens and um, Shakespeare and Enid Blyton and <laughs> everybody else, you know, Treasure Island, whatever, um, Mark Twain, I, I would read all of those things. And because I was so into the the language and and how things were expressed i think the writing just came um and again i think it was just something that i just had to do again i'm not struggling to do it but reading those things i think helped me to know how to kind of shape words um and then the guitar as i said was because my dad um wouldn't let me play the guitar so my mom got me the first guitar by swapping it for the two prams uh, Hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah, 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 she yeah, swapped yeah. prams for a guitar. Could you yes. really explain that? <laughs> yeah, I saw this pram, in, in, uh, this uh, guitar in a pawn shop, and I said, yeah, can I have that? It costs three pounds. I said, can I have that? She said, we haven't got it, but if they'll swap these two prams for it, you can have it, which I still have the guitar. Um, it, the guitar has no name, no maker. I can't find out who made it. Um, what is it? It's an acoustic. Clumsy guitar, but um, it's just a cheap old, yeah, it's just a cheap old guitar, but I loved it, still love it. If it wasn't for that guitar, I wouldn't be here now. Do you still have <laughs> um, it? So, yeah, my mum is, yeah, I still have it. Yeah, wow. yeah. My first album was 1972. At that point, I wasn't listening to guitarists. I was just, you know, when I started writing, I was just writing. Writing was it. I wasn't mm-hmm. listening to it. But... Once I started and you get past um, 72 or 70 and I start to listen because I didn't, my first album, the first album I bought was free, which would probably be Ah, 1970 or something, you know, it's Mm. not, it's not. Cost off. uh, Yeah. Cost off, yeah. Yeah. Um, So, uh, uh, but, but then when I heard, then my second thing was um, Led Zeppelin, and that's Jimmy Page. And I thought Jimmy Page was just fantastic. And then it was Mountain, and I thought Leslie West was just phenomenal. Yeah. Then I like um, um, uh, Roy Gallagher, and I like um, C.B. Ray Vaughan, oh, yeah. and I like um, Muddy Waters. This is a great list. I love this. Well, yeah, it's a great <laughs> list. And Martin Offler is still my favourite guitarist. I just think he's just, how he plays, is just wonderful. I want to mention this because in 1974, apparently, you, you were on the front cover of Spare Rib, yeah. uh, which was obviously the feminist uh, paper at the time. And, and, I, and, you know, people now can't imagine what it was like then. But to be a, to be a woman and competing in this world of, of, of rock music with, with such a male dominant, I mean, 
you know, we deal in rock music as, as on our show, Rock on Turds. And, you know, it's mostly blokes. Yeah. And, which, you know, they... Which they, we, we don't like at all. Yeah, but they're the say. ones who... Will, they, wield, they were wielding the power in that period in the 70s. Yeah. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I always think I'm like the last person to talk about anything to do with music because I haven't got a clue what's going on. I mean, um, my experience of... of of uh, pop music and the pop music world is very limited. I'm not a, I, I don't mix in the way that you're supposed to. Um, but did you feel uh, you were, so, it was harder for you that you were treated differently because you were a woman at that time? No, it wasn't. That's what, that's what I mean. You see, that's, that's right. what I'm saying. I didn't find any harder for me part of it. I was just doing what I was doing. So if it was happening, it was happening without me. I was just, writing my songs, playing my songs, get, getting on with it. The only part that I would say I noticed uh, properly was if I would ask a guitarist, how do you do this? How do you play? How do you play that particular technique? What's that? And not one of them would tell me. They'd say, oh, uh, you know, no, mo yeah, they'd say, oh, most most men don't even get to that stage. Or in order to show you that, you need to know this. If I show you this bit, you need to know this bit first. Or that's really difficult, but, you know, maybe one day you'll get there. So all my playing and my stuff, no, is, I'm on my own. No, Nobody would show me. And I found that really interesting. Because you weren't in the gang, as it were. There was a level, level of condescension. Yeah, and, mansplaining. And I, I, yeah, but I could never understand why. Why wouldn't you show? Why wouldn't you show me that? It wasn't. You I know. think guitarists don't like to show anyone anything because they all like. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Joan Arm Trading, and coming up after this, Johnny Marr, Mal Rogers, and your own Phil Manzanera. <laughs> 
Uh, and there's actually a guitar in it that I he got off me, which I'm very proud of. But also, he's a huge, huge admirer of yours, Gary. I mean, he's he. This is a man I think who is the definitive friend of the rock on tours. You know, he's been so supportive. When I was doing my last solo album, I, I was sending Johnny tracks. He was so sweet, you know, and giving me advice and different things. And I think we all sort of. He's the sort of head boy, isn't he? in a way, you know, he's the guy that our students of rock want to turn to occasionally for some support. And and we listen to everything he has to say. He's always very wise, isn't he? Wise. He's very, very wise. And he also, for me, one of the sort of defining images of Glastonbury this year was him back to back with Chrissy Hind. And you just think that is rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. It's a shame we weren't there. That's because we're not rock and roll. <laughs> Obviously. Let's get him on. Johnny Marr. All the Young Dudes was a big one for me. That's how I, I got my style together, really, from learning records. I wanted to play the whole thing. Well, everyone had their guitar player. So one mate was into Richard Blackmore. I had a mate who was very, very into Ronson and into Kossoff and all of this. They were listening for the guitar part. But what happened was I was so into pop music, being a little younger, like a teeny bopper, that if the track started with the organ, I was like, oh, what are the chords? I wasn't waiting for the guitar part i was wanting to play the whole record yeah that really developed my style really i've got this one-man band kind of thing i i just want to say that what you just expressed then johnny it sums up for me one of your greatest artistic achievements which is the backing track for how soon is now you know i never realized until just recently that there's no keyboard on that at all. It's all only you, you know, from that chugging tremolo, which you can talk about in a second, because I love the story about how you made that and the slide guitar and even that marimba sound, which I I thought, oh, that's probably a DX7, you know, but it was you. That's how I'm on it. Yeah. <laughs> I learned this in 2011 when I started to do my solo stuff, that it's helpful to give yourself a narrow, very defined sense of parameters, I think. So the Smiths, we were very provincial. We were very into being Manchester. There was a vibe in there, mostly coming from Tony Wilson, bless him, as annoying as he was. I say annoying in a very affectionate term, you know. He was fabulously rude to me, I must say, you know. But his whole thing was like, you know, we're not London, we're not London, we're not London. And it was helpful, you know. So we had this very provincial bunker mentality, which is helpful. And that we had that later on when we made a couple of other albums. But um, musically as well, we had this thing of, we're not going to have synths on the record. Now, later, of course, when I discovered the emulator, we conveniently forgot about that. But <laughs> being forced to do atmospheric noises on the guitar was, that's my point. Yeah. It was really helpful. And I remembered that when I came to doing the solo stuff, because nowadays, particularly, you know, your option fatigue is a real a real thing for musicians yeah. in the studio. Yeah, overchoice. Yeah, without sounding like a snob about it, what I actually find is it's a bit of a crass analogy or comparison, but it's a little bit like a painter having a palette with any color under the sun and just putting it on the canvas. Yeah, you get my point. I think having a narrow set of parameters is very helpful, and that really helped me out in the Smiths. I was forced to, if I wanted to hear some noises or whatever, I was forced to do it on the guitar, and then I quite quickly realized that that was a bit of a good politic. Great. We always start with the guitar, no matter what. Except maybe one track started with drums, but yeah. So that oh, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing to know. I'll go back and check that. You have your manifesto. And as yeah. I've got older, it might sound incredibly obvious, but with my own band until, you know, until I start changing, there are things now where, <laughs> it does sound obvious, but 
if I can do it on a guitar, I feel duty bound to do it on a guitar. Mm-mm-mm. We're a guitar band. There's loads of other kinds of bands. Johnny, if you don't mind, I'm sure you had loads of bands when you were before you met yeah. Morrissey. But the big one for everyone is that meeting between you and him and, and how it was. You know, I just want to just, just have a listen to that story. Well, I've been hustling around for years. I've joined a band of... Uh, uh, you say for years. I mean, how old are you at this point? I left school at 15 to be in a band because my, my, the band I was in at the time, my mate's band, we were, actually, we were pretty uh, <laughs> competent, like a kind of power pop band. And we went and did a demo at Nick Lowe's house, home studio, and, um, which was amazing. Oh, that's for us. right, yeah. So then yeah, I, we had him on the show. He was amazing. He was amazing. So, of course, Andy Rock, who's my mate and myself, we went back to our school then and just kind of just said to everybody, like, you know, the next week, we were just like, hey, guess what? We're leaving, suckers. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, see ya. Well, you will if you're watching Top of the Pops in a few weeks. We've all done that. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I didn't even notice that we'd left. But uh, anyway, so let's... (laughs) And then I'd had, I'd been in a few different bands, and I was in one band, a band of adults. I kind of got headhunted. This band of real reprobates, but they'd made a record. They were called Sister Ray, and they were on this compilation album. They sounded a bit like Stooges mixed with Hawkwind. That's really uh, that's right, right. Hey. Anyway, I'd been in a few bands like that, and uh, I got to this point where I, I kind of knew what band I really, in my dreams, the kind of band I really wanted. And um, I was working in this clothes shop and everybody used to come in and out of this clothes shop and people from Factory Records. So I knew all the bands there, you know, I'm 17, maybe 18. And um, I got very into the girl groups. I got into the girl groups because I was into the dolls. And like all of us, you know, I know you would have done in a big way, like everyone did with Bowie. Our heroes inform our taste. I got educated through the music papers and turning me on to a lot of things. That's how I found out about William Burroughs. And we all did through Bowie and stuff. Yeah. But anyway, um, I was very into the New York scene. I love Patti Smith. And I love the Dolls. All those people used to do covers of Be My Baby, Ronettes and the Crystals and the Shangri-Las. So those songs I liked, I liked them more than modern music. I liked old records more. I just thought they were more interesting and weirder. They didn't sound... There was a massive massive 50s revival then, wasn't there? I mean, it was the American Graffiti and obviously, you know, Grease and whatever. But yeah. it, was a, it was a popular thing, you know, the revival yeah. of 50s. A kitsch, in a kitsch way. Also because punk styling was very 50s, wasn't it? With every, yeah, the quiff. Yeah. It didn't sound kitsch to me. I mean, particularly the mid-early 60s stuff from the Brill Building, like the Crystals and particularly the Shangri-Las. I love that. So... I was very into that. And I started, I lived in this attic space with this family. I moved out my mum and dad's, I got this job in a clothes shop and I was living in a, a, this little attic space. I had my own little, I treated it like a, a sort of laboratory in a way. I had a little three track, weirdly cassette recorded. And my, I had this idea, cause I love the girl groups of, well, everyone in around the factory scene was being, was very informed by Electro and hip hop and New York, because there was a lot of that. The bands were going over ACR, New Order. There was a sort of transatlantic thing happening. All my mates were, were being funky, so I knew all of that. And it was interested in it, but I thought, well, I'm onto something with this, these kind of chord changes. And then it, then it expanded then to Motown, which I'd always loved. So I started playing these kind of chord changes and writing these songs in my bedroom. And I thought, well, 
you also want to be modern. So I didn't want to, it wasn't like I wanted to form a band that dressed that way. It wasn't like I wanted to be the commitments, but I had this weird kind of lateral thinking where I thought if we had the back line of Patti Smith and I, I learn how to arrange these songs, these short, weird songs, it would be more interesting than, than what my, my pals were doing because they were very into James Brown, certain ratio, we're doing a lot of that. There was a bit of a jazz thing going on. And I just thought, well, I'm a rock musician. I wanted to make a new kind of rock band. And in an ideal world, it would be a four piece. And I'd have a sort of my own kind of Mick Jagger because I was obsessed with the Rolling Stones, which mm. is why the first Smith single, 45, is Navy Blue. It looks like a Decca record. Now, I'd already knew of Stephen Morrissey because some of my mates had been in a band with him years before, and he seemed to have dropped off the radar. But he was someone who I knew was in my town who was regarded himself as a frontman, a singer, even though, as I say, he'd gone quiet for a few years. But more importantly, I knew that he was into the girl groups because he was a Dolls fan. That was the only other person on the planet would understand what I was going for. And he was a singer and I needed a singer. And that all turned out to be true. He was the only other person who knew about the crystals and the angels and the cookies and all of that. So the next day I did a bit of phoning around my old neighborhood, but the older guys, because Morris was four, four or five years older than me. And one guy gave me a number of another guy and I went and knocked on the door. Anyway, I got his address from someone who used to know him and I jumped on the bus with a friend of mine and we, I went and went up the path and knocked on his door. His sister came at the door and we sent Stephen in and then he appeared at the door and uh, I just just went <laughs> a mile a minute. I formed this band. So we went up the stairs. My mate then just became completely mute and I think he was like, this is history in the making. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, I probably told him that on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I went upstairs in his room, you know, a very tidy young man's bedroom. And uh, he said to me, do you want to put a record on? I went over and I looked through his records. He had some 45s, some Sandy Shaw stuff, which was interesting to me. I was a big, big Dusty Springfield fan. And then um, I just found this Marvelettes record called Paperboy. And I went to put it on, and he said, good choice. And I flipped over the, the B-side, which was called You're the One, and I just put the B-side on. <laughs> Mate. Oh, my God. That's a great story. He got then you he, then. He knew yeah. you're the one. And me and him just went, let's be brilliant. Let's wow. be amazing. I love the origin stories, don't you? Yeah. And, I, I mean, that was a particularly good one, you know, those sliding doors of it could have happened, it may not have happened, you know, those meetings, those that turning over of the record, you know, that... I mean, where did I meet you? I wish I could have slid back and avoided that one. You could have quite easily, actually. Budapest. All you had to do was not go to the bar. Right. But that wasn't going to happen, was it? (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, what Johnny was saying about, you know, all his mates were were getting funky. I mean, when we say that that Nile Rogers was one of Johnny's guitar heroes, I mean, he named his son Nile. It's interesting, you know, how you know, one thing leads to another. And of course, what, what I found fascinating when we spoke to Nile Rogers, we were doing his origin story of Chic, is I couldn't believe where that came from. Yeah, exactly. Because we're back home again, aren't we? To Roxy Music. Yeah, I know, but to British glam rock. You know, Roxy were never the biggest band in America. And for them to be a direct influence... Well, it's only because Nile was over here, wasn't it? It's only because he was at Wembley. Oh, right. Okay, okay. So he got on a plane. 
He got like, well, he, yeah, he got dragged along to see them. But also, I like I just love that quote of Johnny's about Brian. It said some people collect guitars, Brian collects guitarists. <laughs> and uh, what blows my mind is actually getting confirmed, and actually even better than I'd heard it, the story of how Niall and Bernard were introduced. Let's hear it. I've got to hear this from the horse, so to speak, right? The story on it is that when you first spoke to Nard, right, this is Bernard Edwards, by the way, listeners. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, apparently, now, this story I know is your aunt, I think it was, worked at the next booth from him at the post office and told her... Close, okay. close. It was my girlfriend's mom. There you go. But the story is... My, the story my girlfriend's mom. I heard, right, and I'd love to think this is true, is that apparently the first time you spoke to each other on the phone... And you were telling him all your ideas about Hendrix and Indian music and orchestral and stuff and everything. And he said, brother, can you do a brother a favor? Lose my number. Yeah, it actually was. It was shorter than that. <laughs> it was shorter than that. It, it had no brother in it. It, uh, went, it was uh, the, exa- the exact quote. <laughs> the exact quote was, yo, my man, lose my number. Click, hung up the phone on me. Now, remember... We, we, and how how worlds how worlds collide, man? That could have changed the shape of music. But it, it wound up it wound up working out perfectly. But let me give you the backstory on this. So my my girlfriend's mom worked at the post office right next to Bernard, and she never heard him play a note. She just said, "There's something," you know. So my girlfriend's mom, she was married to a famous uh, jazz bass player, an upright bass player, and somehow she says. I don't know this cat next to me. She's he just got a vibe. I don't I don't know. It's like, there's something about him. So she told him. She says, "You should meet my my daughter's boyfriend. You know he's really cool." Blah blah blah. So he called me up, and in those days when we put bands together, um, we had a newspaper in New York called the Village Voice. Yeah, and we were just trying to get the most well-rounded players we could find. So you would always put an ad, we'd call them strip ads, and you would say, um, you know, uh, looking for bass player um, uh, to play funk, jazz, prog rock, blah, 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 you know, whatever, whatever it was. Not on, not on heavy trip. Right, yeah. Yeah, no, right. right. No, no, no heavy trippers need, a li- need apply. <laughs> so, so she gave Bernard my phone number and he called the house and I was really into my hippie head. All of the people who lived in the apartment with us were like deadheads and, you know, and oh, uh, my God. So one dude, uh, so my my, my uh, girlfriend's mom's boyfriend, um, he was a total Frank Zappa fanatic. So he was a Zappa fanatic. My boy Lonnie was a deadhead. And I remember we're all black and Latino, right? So he he was a deadhead. And I was like totally into Jimmy. But I also liked, um, yeah, I, I was a huge fan of, of Traffic and, and, you know, Country Joe and the Fish and, and all sorts of really hip jam bands. And I love surf bands. So when Bernard called, oh, wow. when Bernard called me, he says, uh, uh, so my man, uh, I hear you looking for a bass player. You're trying to put a band together. And I went total hippie on him. I said, yeah, man, you know, like um, like I wanted to be across 
across between uh, like Fairport Convention and uh, a little Mahavishnu, um, you know, like like some Country Joe and the Fish Man, you know, and um, yeah. and Bernard just listened to me go on and on with this sort of like hippie diatribe, and then this is all he said, uh, "Yo, my man, lose my number," and hung the phone right up on my click. So I called Bernard up and I said, man, we got to do the black version of this. And he was like, what? And I ran out. Uh, I went down to Camden, um, to Camden Lock, where you could get all the albums really cheap in those days. And uh, and I didn't realize Roxy Music had three albums already. And I was like, whoa. I love this. I, love I this. never even heard of these dudes. And they got three albums. And they had like Amanda Lear on the cover and like, Playboy bunnies and we were like, whoa, what's up with this? Well, you you lifted the album cover, didn't you? you the, yeah, the, right, right, right. You so if you look at the first be country yeah. life or something yeah. like that. Yes, yeah, so, right. So you look at the first chic album cover and we you know, we did the whole supermodel thing and so it was like and they're doing all the kind of nineteen twenties style, aren't they? Right, exactly. Point? You know, it's, it's got this kind of look to it. Yeah, so we got we got all into it. And uh, so we did the black version of Roxy music. But while we were putting the band together, because Tony Thompson wasn't in the original Big Apple band. So basically it was just Bernard and myself and, and a singer named Bobby Cotter. Bobby had just finished uh, a stint with Jesus Christ Superstar. So he could really sing. Um, he played Judas and he could just blow. Oh, that's I mean, the highest song in the show. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did um uh we did a bunch of songs that that only myself and Bobby did a little writing. Bernard hadn't written anything with me yet. Um so we took all those demos around and every record company loved our demos. They all wanted to see us and when we showed up and we were a black rock and roll band, they turned us down right away. They said, "Hey, you guys don't look like your music." We were like, "What? We don't look like <laughs> <Wow>. our music." <laughs> And uh, we, we finally got what they meant. Um, so uh, Bobby, on one of our rock and roll gigs, he met a girl that became his wife. So he left the band. So now it was just Bernard and myself. So I still had the Roxy Music thing in my head. And I said, you know, we got to do the black version of this. So we started hunting for musicians. It was like the Magnificent Seven. We were going around looking and looking and looking. <laughs> and the first person we hired was a keyboard player named Rob Sabino, who played on every single Sheik record yeah, to this yeah, very yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um, amazing, amazing. So we hired Rob Sabino and he said, man, you know what, man? You should see these friends of mine. They're called Kiss. And, you know, oh, let, we, let's go check them out, man. You know, my good friend is Ace Fraley. So we went to check out Kiss at a club in New York called the Hotel Diplomat at the place called Le Jardin du Paris. And um, we went to You're check- You're making this up now. These names yeah. are just too good. No, no, no. Serious. Straight, <laughs> straight up. It's like a Simon Templar Saint episode. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Totally straight up. So we go and we check out Kiss and everybody is flipping out over them. They're like screaming. But then they take off their makeup and not one person recognizes them. So Ace comes and sits at the table with me and we're drinking and laughing and like, I'm going, wait a minute. Everybody was just like losing their complete shit over you. And now you're sitting here with me completely anonymous. And that was yeah, like- And you're not getting, you're not getting laid. <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story about Ace and that later on, but yeah. Okay. So, so I was like, this is amazing. You could be like 
rock stars and then when you take off your makeup nobody has any idea who you are so the concept of chic was a cross between the fashion and the coolness of roxy music and the anonymity of kiss and then we put our name in all uppercase letters I'm actually looking at our first thing right now. It's right next to me. Yeah. All uppercase letters. So we had two C's, an H, and an I. Kiss had a K, two S's, and an I. Oh. We were like, yo. Oh. Whose was the name? Who came yeah. up with the name? Bernard actually came up with the name because uh, oh. I still wanted to keep the Big Apple Band because we had a following. Why would we change our name? And the only reason why we changed our name was because a guy who I went to school with, uh, a guy named Walter Murphy, put out um, a disco record called A Fifth of Beethoven. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah, he yeah, called yeah. himself yeah. Walter Murphy remember, and the yeah. Big Apple Band. So everybody thought that was us. Chic is very like Roxy music as well. But you know what's interesting is this sort of sick, circular thing between going on between uh, UK and America. So so you know, we had uh, John Taylor on the show a few weeks ago. And, you know, I was in Spandau, but he was in Duran Duran. You know, we kind of had the same, we burst out into the, uh, into onto the scene in 1980, and and what we said every time was, we're our music. What makes the 80s music? It's a combination of the Sex Pistols, glam rock, and chic. <laughs> so we, we, you know, but what 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 I didn't quite fully understand is that chic's inspiration came from glam rock. It came from Roxy music as well, and of course, then you as a person end up coming after in, in the 80s, end up coming back into the UK and redesigning our greatest glam rock star, David Bowie, and Duran Duran. Right, exactly. And, yeah. and it's funny. You're, you just keep giving that gift, don't you? <laughs> the longest relationship I've ever had. Well, now it's now Diana Ross. I'm working <laughs> with her now. But the longest relationship I've ever had with any artist has been um, Duran Duran and Brian Ferry. I've worked with them more and longer than anyone wow. in my life. So Roxy Music and Brian Ferry are all ringing in our ears now and which seamlessly takes us to our final guitar hero. I wore the fly glasses. I went to Phil Manzanera's house a couple of years ago for a cup of tea and those famous fly glasses was just sort of, which I think, who designed them? Anthony um was it Anthony Price Anthony Price uh he made them and you know which he wears you know on I think on the For Your Pleasure cover or is it the, uh, the first album I can't remember oh uh, no it's a, yeah it's on the inside of the second one yeah yeah For, for Your pleasure. pleasure and I, I I put those on I mean that was that was a big moment for me guy yeah you fell down the stairs didn't you <laughs> <laughs> but I was still buzzing <laughs> <laughs> um anyway he's, he's an old mate of yours isn't he Phil, yeah, well, he's collaborated, of course, with Pink Floyd, Robert Wyatt, David Byrne, The Pretenders. Yeah. In the last couple of years, been doing this fantastic project with Tim Finn, which I yeah. might have been on. Yeah, yeah, uh, But yeah. always best known, of course, for his bass and Roxy Music. And should say he was one of that original bunch of mates that we called up who made Rock on Tours possible. He was. So I eternally think grateful. Is this like the second episode we ever did? Yeah. Interesting. Let's go back in time. To Phil Manson here. Nice to be here. So I'm, 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 Your smiling faces. I know, I, know, I, know, I know you well, but I'm still thrilled that I know 
the bloke from Roxy Music, <laughs> uh, and and that wonderful inside sleeve from um, in that the the album picture that had you with the with the fly glasses with on, the bug eyes, and, yeah, and, and the famous Hagstrom Firebird. No, no, oh, you I, had the no, I had the Firebird. Where did all Red those from. guitars come from? Um, I think the Hagstrom was could have been Paul's. I can't remember. Bizarrely, Paul uh, Thompson. Paul Thompson. <laughs> what would he be doing? Well, I'm not. I, I, I can't remember. I have to Google it to, to find out who owned what. <laughs> Obviously, Eno's snake guitar was his own snake guitar. You know, which is about a tenor from somewhere in Shepherd's Bush. And the Les Paul was the John Porter's Les Paul, who, who the oh. bass player, who uh, that, that I borrowed on a lot of uh, to use on a lot of the albums. Yeah. And where did the Firebird come from? Where did you find it? The guy who uh, designed it, Ray Dietrich, um, uh, when uh, Gibson were looking at the Fender uh, success and they wanted to compete, so they uh, commissioned Ray Dietrich, who was a famous uh, uh, car designer who had built all those amazing, you know, dig the Not fins. Cadillacs. Ah, all, all oh, the great Chevys. And, yeah. it, and so he basically <laughs> took one of those fins, if you can imagine, from uh, and uh, worked it up into the firebed. And um, back in the day, when the Melody Maker, which was the, the mu- one of the two music newspapers of in the sixties, they had a uh, ad section at the back, and people used to buy and sell guitars in there. And uh, I saw one day it said uh, Firebird guitar. I had no idea what a Firebird guitar was, and um, so I rang up and said, yeah, "That sounds good. Can I come around?" I went to this uh, amazing house in Regent's Park. And it, uh, it was the son of a very rich uh, American guys who'd come over from Kalamazoo. And they had bought their, their young son a um, red Gibson custom, Gibson Fireman. It's direct from the factory, custom made, because of most Kalamazoo. of them are brown. Right. And uh, he opened the door and, and he just like held the red fireball. I said, oh, my, yeah, that's mine. Thank you. <laughs> And the reason was I, I had um, had bought a Hofner Galaxy, which was red. That's all I could afford in the uh, in the early sixties. And uh, so red guitar, and I thought something flashy, you know, for for Roxy. But you know, when I joined Roxy, actually, they wanted me to to ditch my three three five and get a um, white Strat. So for the first album, who demanded that? Uh, you know, their style icons, you know, <laughs> who were running the band. Um, well, that's funny, because back then, what I would, White Strat, I suppose, would be Hendrix. But otherwise, you think White Fenders, you kind of think the Beach Boys. But it wasn't sort of Anthony <laughs> Price who decided what guitar people <laughs> yeah. had. To Pro- <laughs> uh, probably, you know, he gave me the glass, he gave me the look, you know, so he probably did decide. Um, but I, I, was, I thought it was a bit dull, you know, so... <laughs> I, I eventually got my red firewood, and that's been my signature guitar, if you like. It is your thesis, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had gone for an audition with Roxy and failed. Wow. Uh, and uh, they, they got... But I, I made friends with them. I used to bump into them all over the place. And then... Um, when you say all over the place, go yeah, on. What, yeah, what, kind what, of, yeah, what, what, what were the, the hangs? Yeah, yeah, exactly. what, well, <laughs> at um, avant-garde concerts at the, the QEH, you know, like... Well, uh, Stockhausen. Not Stockhausen, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, Terry Riley uh, right, right. Uh, and oh, right. all those kind of things. I bump into Eno and uh, songs just in C. <laughs> yes, in C was very popular then. Yeah, and Rainbow and Curved Air. Yeah, and that album. And um, some friends of mine did the light show for them. Uh, they got a, a gig at the Friends of the Tate Christmas party. So I went along with my friend to see the, the light show, and this um, tranny pulled up. Actually, I've got to say. Uh, 
transit van. Transit van. It could have been a tranny if it had been a year later. I thought it was that Eno. Well, so it turned up and Brian was driving it. and Brian driving a transit van, a VAT. Yeah. And Andy was in the front seat. And Paul was stuffed in there somewhere. And Eno, because being sort of not so tall, was sort of slotted in with the PA system in the back. And they... And Dave O'List was there, who was, by then, oh, was right. a guitarist. And he was a, a fantastic guitarist who was in, and probably still is, uh, in the band called The Nice, uh, who, you know, had done very well. In, which started with Keith Emerson, yeah. Five, yeah. Five Bridges was it, the it, sort of first exactly. prog rock And um, uh, anyway, the, the, the doors opened, and they all were humping the, the, the cab, these Turner cabinets in. And I thought, wow, they, they don't have roadies. <laughs> and, and poor chaps, they're having to bring the stuff in so i was sort of about to help and i noticed that dave wasn't helping because he'd been in a professional band before oh. and he was just <laughs> sitting there with a fag and so, watching them you know watching brian ferry and brian walking the, the gear in <laughs> and everything and and uh, so it made contact again you know saying would you come down and uh, mix help mix the sound because in those days eno used to be in the audience mixing the sound yeah because he was a bit uh, what, with, a, with a VS synthesizer or with his synthesizer and the mixing desk and uh, I don't think they allowed him on stage because he made everyone too nervous so and also there was <laughs> there <laughs> were, yeah yeah moving on and yeah. um, uh, we haven't got all day here and um, Is that with the, because they didn't want to get poked in the eye with an ostrich feather <laughs> <laughs> it was pre all that gear so I went round to this um, uh, a friend of theirs house which was sort of a derelict house but had some electricity in Notting Hill and uh, when I turned up they said oh Dave hasn't turned up his guitar said fancy having a go but I had a sort of little premonition that something might be coming up so I had learned all this stuff the uh, the night before because they'd done a John Peel show I could hear you know what the songs were. I said well look Show me the chords or whatever. Thinking back on it now, there are only like two or three chords. <laughs> Show me the chords and, I, and I'll play it. <laughs> so I play it and I'll just play it like just totally right. And they say, well, okay, next one. So, you know, they thought, Jesus, this guy actually is bloody good. <laughs> Were you imposing a style? Did you have a style of guitar uh, playing? No, like I, I, I was actually sort of like copying a bit right, what they'd played right. already. So I knew, you know, I didn't want to scare the horses, as they say. So... Um, so I played that, and then they said, well, uh, would you like to, to join? And so I joined on the, uh, it was my birthday on the 31st of January. The, fir- the 4th of February I joined, and the contract, uh, Roxy contract, is signed on the 14th of February. And then six weeks later in the studio recording, and then eight weeks later it was number four is... in the show, wow. 1972. 72. So I just was in the right place at the right time. But how lucky were they? <laughs> <laughs> and the look. And all played the, together. The glam look. I mean, because you, you, you toured with Bowie, didn't you? For a, yeah. For supporting no, was, Bowie at the Rainbow, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think we only played with him about twice or three oh. times. But he was incredibly supportive and, 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 and nice. And, uh, you know, when uh, I remember at rehearsals, Andy and Brian had been to see him. And I think that influenced a lot that we had to step up our game in terms of presentation. And, and in fact, we then got his lighting guy. Uh, and in those days, he was the first person to have these sort of scaffolding things on That's small right, yeah. stages with some actual theatre lights. And people didn't have that before. So um, he had Mick Ronson up on a gantry somewhere, didn't he, on some scaffolding. The band were sort of... That's around. right. So and we had his guy. We used his guy. 
And so, you know, all those kind of cumulative things helped. And obviously, then we upped our game with, uh, we're all a bit shy. So we said, let's just put on costumes as if you're in the theater or something like that and, and become different people when yeah. you go on stage. So you, you turn up with sort of drab clothes and then suddenly in the dressing room. But it was, wasn't coordinated or anything like that. It was totally, everybody did their own thing, found their own people. And the first time we saw what we were each wearing was when we literally changed before going on stage. <laughs> and they said, you're not going to wear, what is that? You're wearing that? You know, to, you know, something. Did you ever both be wearing the same? I can't go on stage. He's wearing the same <laughs> snakeskin. <laughs> never, was, never. Anthony Price then came along, no, didn't he? And he well, kind of Anthony, coordinated it. Well, oh, the Wendy Dagworthy as well. Oh, you know, in those early days, because all the outfits on the second album cover were Wendy Dagworthy. Well, actually, no, mine, Brian's. Enos was done with Carol McNichol. You talk about the, the, the centerfold. Yeah, the centerfold. Yeah. For your pleasure. So it, it was, you know, a variation of lots of people making stuff. And it was just the juxtaposition of it all together that created a whole. And it's the same with the music. You know, it's yeah. everyone playing little pits and little bubbles coming. You know, the bubble coming out of my head was I'm in the Velvet Underground and the early Pink Floyd. I'm playing this way. And I don't, whatever you're playing over there, this is what I'm playing. Right, you know, this I'm, is almost like a, Eno's cards. Yeah, it? yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like you you drew the Pink Floyd one or whatever. Well, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the psychedelic 60s and right. soft machine well, and, and, and all that fuzzed up stuff. Thank you for listening to our first uh, sort of summer greatest hits while Guy and I lounge around in Eastbourne. And of course, also prepare for our first trip of uh, Nick Mason's Source for the Secrets to Australia. In fact, we might be there as you are listening to this. I think in saying that, Guy, I'm hoping on getting Hank Marvin down to the Perth show. Yes! Another old raconteur. Exactly. He should have been on this episode. Why wasn't Hank? I'm sorry you're not on this episode, but of course you are the guitar god to nearly every guitar god that we've had on. Isn't that true, guy? That he is the guitar god's guitar god. Kind of, it goes Hank Marvin and Jeff Beck in terms of guitar gods, guitar gods, doesn't it? But he might be turning up on our next collection. He may, because he is... Uh... We're doing Legends of the 60s. We are. And we've had a few of those on. I'm sure it's going to be another chance for us to meet on the sun deck at uh, the splendid hotel we're staying at in Eastbourne, looking down on the sea mist and, um, and the scones. Exactly, before repairing to the Alhambra for the evening's performance of Rum for Your Wife. Yes. Oh, I think I just burped up a whelk. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, there you have it. Don't forget, you can listen to all these interviews in their entirety wherever you get your podcasts from. And thank you to Ian Callahan for putting this uh, special together and the polishing. So it's good night from me, and it's good night from him. Rock on Tours is produced by Gimme Sugar Productions for Warner Music Group UK. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.